If you would grab a Bible and open up to 1 Corinthians chapter 14 this morning. That's our sermon passage. 1 Corinthians 14 will be in the first 25 verses of that chapter. While you're turning there, I will uh, just remind us that we're working through instructions for the gathered worship of the church. Uh, Chapters 11 through 14 of the book here, of the letter that Paul's writing to the Corinthians, is dealing with what, what are you supposed to do, how are you supposed to interact with one another when you come together on a Sunday morning, when you're gathered together in corporate uh, worship settings. And I, I want to say again, for those of you who've been here, this goes without saying, but if maybe this is one of your first times coming and hearing these messages, these are difficult passages. Chapters 11 through 14 have some very difficult sayings in them, in that we're, it's, it's hard to fully understand what Paul was communicating because there are, there are cultural things that are being communicated that may have been very applicable to the Corinthians and may not be as applicable to us or at least relatable to us. Uh, there, are just, uh, there are sayings in these verses that have been interpreted in different ways throughout church history. And so not, not in uh, massive doctrinal shifts, mind you, but in just understanding like, the nuances of what Paul might have meant when he talks like this. He says this thing, that thing. They're just hard passages to work through as a church. And so, you know, I feel that as I'm up here teaching these texts over the, these few weeks, these are not the typical sort of gospel sermons that we're so often used to hearing as we open up God's Word, and, and certainly for me as, I'm a, as I preach it on a Sunday morning, meaning that, you know, so often the, 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 the passages sort of direct us to the, the saving work of Christ, to the, the person of Christ, to the deity, the glory, the majesty, and there's always at least for me, there's always this sense when I'm, when I'm crafting a sermon that I'm looking for, how that directs us to this sort of crescendo where we just get to just worship and glory in the beauty of, of Christ and the beauty of the gospel. And most of the time that happens, I think, when we, when we come and open up God's word. There are certain texts where it feels more like it's just sort of, you're just teaching through some, some, some stuff, <laughs> for lack of a better term. And that's the way these sort of feel. Now, I, I want to say this. That means not that we're moving away from the gospel in any way, but that what we're doing here is I think we're working out, we're listening to Paul's instructions to the church, again, as they're gathered together, to work out the effects of the gospel in our community of faith. So you think about the Corinthians, what we've learned about them so far, and, and this is relevant to us too. He's, he's He's speaking to a group of now believers in Jesus Christ who have come out of this culture that's so centered around selfish gain, that's so centered around division and partisanship and those kinds of things, and they've now been brought into the family of God through the saving work of Christ, and they need to learn what it looks like to be reoriented from selfish people and divided people into uh, redeemed people who, who love one another and who are seeking the unity of Christ. And that's true for us too, right? That's who we are. 
That's the work God is doing in, in his people throughout all time. So that's what these, these chapters are about, is helping the gathered worship church reorient into growing as a loving group of people, a family of God who's seeking after the unity of Jesus Christ. As we've been speaking over the last couple of weeks, we've been talking specifically about spiritual gifts, the gifts that the Spirit gives to each believer in the, in the body for the purpose of building up the body, and that what we've learned so far is that everyone, every Christian, is gifted with these spiritual gifts. God has imparted something, whether it's one thing or multiple things, uh, whether it's a shifting of things. He, is, he uses each of us to bless the others. So there is this diversity of gifts in the church, and that diversity of gifts is necessary for the healthy, unified function of the body. He uses the analogy of a human body to describe the body of Christ, right? He says, you have arms and ears and eyes and, and feet, and all these things are important. They all work together to make a unified, healthy whole. So spiritual gifts are that way for us. We all have them. There's a diversity. They're necessary. The key, he said, last time we, get, we came together and looked at chapter 13, the key is that we're motivated to love people through those gifts. That's what they are for. They're demonstrations of love that we share with one another uh, to share the love of God and begin to, to edify the church family. And then now as we get into chapter 14, he's going to continue talking about spiritual gifts and specifically saying this is what they're for, right? You all have them. There's a diversity. There's a unity. The motive is love. What are they for? And he's going to really specifically tell us this. The spiritual gifts are for building up the church. That's what they're for. To build up, to edify, to grow the body of Christ. So let's look at this text here and see uh, how he explains this idea of building up. He's going to ask us a few questions. You know, essentially, who are you building up when you use these gifts? How are you building them up? And then what's the, what's the power that, that comes when all of that works together in the way that the Spirit intends it to work? So let's look at the first question, which is, who are my gifts building up? Who are my gifts building up? Is it to build up the church, or am I using it to build up somehow myself? Look at verses 1 to 5. Paul says, Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts especially that you may prophesy. For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God. For no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the Spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Now, I want you to all speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets, so that the church may be built up. So again, these are, these are challenging passages. What does all this mean? What's he talking about here? The key verse for understanding the main idea of this section of the text is the end of verse 4 right? He's talking about building up the church. His concern is that our spiritual gifts 
be used in a corporate context, not for ourselves, not to, to edify ourselves, not to somehow just create a, a personal experience of worship that's unto ourselves, but that it is built, it is for building up other people in the church collectively, again, edifying them uh, 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 for the sake of their spiritual maturity and the spiritual growth of the whole body. That main idea is also made evident at the end of verse 5. Again, he says there, that the church may be built up. So no matter what gifts we've been given, and again, all of us who are in Christ have been given some kind of spiritual gifts, that's the point of them. That's the purpose of them. Now, the fact that Paul here is talking about two specific gifts, he's talking about tongues and prophecy, that is, I think, indicative of a specific issue at work in the Corinthian church, whereby the Corinthians had placed an inordinate value on those two gifts, the gift of prophecy and the gift of tongues, and the way that they were using that we're going to see is not for the building up of others, but it's been more directed towards this sort of self-centered uh, edification. And, and the reason why they've, they've, they've sort of misvalued these two gifts is because they don't really understand the purpose of all of the gifts, which again, Paul's main point is it's for the building up of others, building up the body of Christ. So since Paul talks about tongues and he talks about prophecy, we get the task of working through those two things and trying to understand what is it that he's saying about these two gifts and therefore how will that help us in understanding again more of what the main idea is, the purpose of all of the gifts. This is a fun uh, topic, right? Because we, these are, these are controversial gifts in the church. Uh, what's the deal with speaking in tongues? What is the deal with speaking in tongues? Well, I assume that's not a practice that many of us in this congregation are very familiar with because we don't speak in tongues in our worship services. At least I've never seen that or heard that. Uh, I'm not aware of anyone at Edgewater who privately speaks in tongues in their personal worship. That may, be, uh, that may not be the case, but I'm certainly not aware of it. So I'm, I'm guessing that most of us aren't super familiar with this spiritual gift or what it's supposed to look like or how it plays out. Some of you uh, have a background in more Pentecostal churches or charismatic churches. So, so you have seen or maybe you've even practiced a form of speaking in tongues that I think most commonly, uh, at least in the modern church context, is experienced as a, an utterance of a unintelligible um, supposed he like a heavenly language, a language that is not earthly, that's not a normal, uh, regularly spoken human language, and that's either done in public or private worship within certain charismatic or Pentecostal circles. The question is, what is Paul referring to here? Is that what he's referring to? Is it this heavenly language, this unintelligible thing that that, um, you, you know, is, is, is not rooted in a, a human language? Or is he talking about something else? Well, as I said, that's a question of some controversy, and especially over the last 60 to 100 years or so, as the charismatic movement has really taken shape over that time frame. Prior to that, it was, it was not uh, much of a movement, especially here in the Western church, but it, it's become so, particularly over the last 60 years. I'm going to make a case this morning 
for why I don't think that the gift of tongues is made manifest in the kind of unintelligible babble that we so often see or hear in Pentecostal churches today. And by babble, I don't mean to say that uh, pejoratively. I just mean uh, like an unintelligible utterance that just we don't get, we don't understand. Now, I want to say as I make that case, that I make this case with humility, okay? Um, these are difficult passages. And I do want to reinforce that, that there are different ways that we can interpret these passages. Different people, very godly people, have interpreted them in different ways. Some of you might find that you're, you're maybe uncomfortable with the way that I'm uh, working through the text and interpreting things, and that's okay. I want to say that. That's okay. I don't think these are primary issues per se. They're important issues, uh, but we can fellowship together around the main issue of Jesus Christ and him crucified and resurrected and still disagree about what some of these interpretations might mean. So I, wanna, I just want to say that uh, what I'm going to share with you, I'm, I'm sharing in humility. This is my understanding of the text. Now, the clearest example, we talk about tongues. The clearest example of speaking in tongues that we see in the New Testament is in Acts chapter 2, which Natalie just read for us, all right? That's the day of Pentecost. That's the day when the, the Holy Spirit, as promised by Jesus, descends upon the, the believing community at that time. He descends upon the apostles, and they begin to speak publicly about, it says, the mighty deeds of God to the people who were gathered and present in Jerusalem on that day. And we're told, as we remember, as, we, as she read it to us, that the gathering was made up of, of Jewish people primarily uh, from many different nations, each with different native languages. And yet, somehow, they heard the apostles speaking to them in their own native tongues. So in other words, the gift of tongues was manifested in known human languages and so what may have sounded like babble, unintelligible speaking to one person would have sounded quite natural to another who may have been standing just next to them. And the best way that I can sort of, uh, sort of envision what this might be like is imagine if you were to step into the, uh, the Council of the United Nations. Have you ever seen a uh, you know, like a C-SPAN or something where, where you get a glimpse into what happens in the UN and you see all these people sitting at their, at their respective booths and they've got their nameplates and the, the country that they represent and they're all wearing headphones, right? So whoever's speaking, what they're saying is being translated to, the, to everybody in their headphones and they can understand each other. But imagine if you were to step in there without the headphones. You'd hear speaking and you'd be like, I have no idea what that means. And yet somebody else could be like, oh, I know exactly what he's saying because they're speaking in my native language. That's what was, it was like on the day of Pentecost as people were hearing the mighty deeds of God in their own natural language. So what was supernatural about that occurrence was not the languages themselves. What was supernatural was, about, was the fact that the apostles, who were guys who had no prior knowledge of those languages were suddenly able to speak those languages clearly, completely intelligibly, so that the foreigners present could understand. That's the clearest example of speaking in tongues that we have in the scriptures. 
And I want to say this, there's no controversy about that. Anybody who reads Acts chapter 2, anybody who has a different position on, on, on how the gifts of tongues are manifested in the church today, don't dispute that that's how it operated on that day, the day of Pentecost. Where questions arise, however, is when verses like 1 Corinthians 13, 1 or 14, uh, verse 2 are read. So look at those with me. Look at chapter 13 again. We looked at this last week. Paul says, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Again, the point there was that we need to do what we do, use our gifts with love. But he uses these two examples, the tongues of men and of angels. What is this tongue of angels that he's talking about? Or in chapter 14, again, verse 2, for one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God. For no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the spirit. What does that mean? What are these mysterious things? What are the tongues of angels? Well, while I can't say with certainty that there isn't some kind of heavenly language that is yet unknown to human beings, I can say this. The biblical evidence for that is virtually non-existent. This heavenly language unknown to human beings. The evidence biblically is virtually non-existent. Every time in scripture that an angel speaks, and there are lots of times we have examples of an angel speaking, that angel is speaking in human language. Spoken to a person who is meant to understand clearly the angel's message in their own native tongue. So you can go back and look at, at Abraham you can look at uh, uh, Hagar, you can look at Gideon, you can look at Mary, you can look at the Apostle John, and again, many other examples where angels come to them and bring them a message from the Lord, and it's in their own native language. So I said last week, I think what Paul's doing in chapter 13, verse 1, is using hyperbole to indicate that an angel's speech is more forceful than a human being's speech, that an angel's speech is more eloquent than when a human being speaks. When you see angels speaking to humans in the Bible, very often the people that are listening to the angels tend to fall on their knees. They tend to fall on their faces. It is a powerful moment. And I think that's the hyperbole that Paul's getting at. I can speak like that, but if I don't have love, I'm nothing. And here in 1 Corinthians 14, Paul also seems to indicate that he understands the gift of tongues to be an utterance of a known human language that is naturally foreign to the person who's speaking it. Look at verses 9 through 11 here in chapter 14. He says, So with yourselves, if with your tongue you utter speech that is not intelligible, how will anyone know what is said? For you'll be speaking into the air. There are doubtless many different languages in the world, and none is without meaning. But if I don't know the meaning of the language, I will be a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker a foreigner to me. So I think he's got a couple of different uh, things in mind as as he's saying this to them, but one of the things that seems to be in mind is that languages are known. Human languages have meaning. And when we speak in tongues, that that we are speaking something that has a meaning that can be interpreted if the language is known. 
So, that's my understanding of the gift of tongues. Okay? That it is a known human language, that it is a spiritual gift that is supernatural in that it's someone who doesn't speak it can suddenly speak it so that others who naturally speak it can understand it. It is or was a manifestation of the speaking the things of God in a foreign human language, again, previously unknown by the person who's speaking it. And therefore, it needed proper interpretation in order to be profitable to other people. Someone either need to understand it or it would need to be interpreted so that all who heard it could understand it. Look at verse 6. Now, brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? How will it benefit you unless there's something you can understand? Look at verse 13. Therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret. So that's my understanding of tongues. Now, I'm going to admit again that my understanding of tongues does not entirely exclude the possibility, as others would argue, that there may be some kind of heavenly language that when uttered is meant for personal praise and devotion between the person who's speaking it and God. That's, that's the way that, that uh, others have understood and practiced this gift. It's something that is between me and God, and it is a non-human language. I'm not, I'm not saying that my understanding uh, obliterates that possibility. It does not. Again, I'm speaking in humility here. Just because I don't have any experience with that, and I don't, doesn't mean that it's impossible. And I'll also concede this. Paul's language is vague enough here to at least grant that possibility. Again, verse 2, he talks about one speaking in a tongue who speaks not to men, but to God. He talks about someone who's speaking mysteries in the Spirit. Verse 4, the one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself. So that could be a, a, uh, a bit of a, a sort of a, uh, I don't want to use the word sarcastic, but it could be a little bit of a, of a correction. You're not really building up people, you're building up yourself. Uh, or it could mean that there's a legitimate way in which you're building up yourself. It's between you and God. Um, it's possible that a private utterance of a tongue in prayer to God is an encouragement to the person who's praying. So, again, you heard my take. I'm get, saying it with humility. There's possibilities. However, I will say this. There's something that is crystal clear in this passage, and that is that an uninterpreted tongue whether it's human or whether it's heavenly, is not meant for the public worship gathering. That's crystal clear. Verse 27 of chapter 14. If any speak in a tongue, let there be only two at most three and each in turn and let someone interpret. But if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and to God. So Paul's making a case here that if there's some unintelligible speech, it doesn't belong in the corporate worship service. Okay? That's what he says about tongues. What about prophecy? How are we to understand the gift of prophecy? Look at verse 3. On the other hand... 
The one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Again, I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues unless someone interprets so that the church may be built up. And again, in verse 6, he says, Now, brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? So verse 3 gives a basic description of the ministry of prophecy in the church. Clearly, and unlike tongues, prophecy includes intelligible speech. Intelligible speech that builds up, encourages, and consoles the other members of the church. Now, there's a long history of prophecy in the Bible. Moses was the first prophet. The the, the Lord refers to him as such in Deuteronomy chapter 18. And then there there was a long line of of, of prophets to follow, many Old Testament prophets whose primary role, primary role, was to call Israel back into covenant faithfulness to God. You, if you wanted to sum up the ministry of the prophets, that would be sort of the top of the list, calling Israel back into covenant faithfulness to God. And they did that by beseeching God's people to, 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 to seek after the Lord, to abandon their idolatries, to repent from sin and so forth, walking in obedience with God's commands. That was what prophets typically did. Now, there were some times when prophets also had a predictive function. In other words, they may, they may tell of future events, and that did happen. But again, more often, it was a call to faithfulness and to fidelity to what God had already told them, or maybe what God was currently telling them to do through the mouth of the prophet, whereas God put his word in the mouth of the prophet and the people were instructed to hear that as the word of God and obey it. So the question, of course, is how does that carry into the New Testament? Well, the gift of prophecy was clearly at work in the New Testament church. And we see that evidenced even here in 1 Corinthians. Look at chapter 12. Back in verse 28, God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, and then miracles and gifts of healing and helping and administration in various kinds of tongues. So prophecy was at work. And it seems like for the apostles and for pastor teachers, just like there was an office for them, it seems like there may have even been an office of prophet in the early church. The question is this, did that office or does the gift of prophecy go away in the church? Like we would say the office of apostleship ended or does it continue even today like the office of uh, elder, pastor, teacher? And on that question, there's at least two common views of this, all right? The first view is often called the cessationist view. And it believes that the gift of prophecy has ended or it has ceased, cessationist, right? It has ceased to exist sometime during the period of the early New Testament church. 
And what this view holds is that God was still in the process at that time of giving new revelation. Again, primarily through the apostles, but also through other prophets, because the scriptures weren't complete yet. So God's still giving new revelation at this time because pastors and elders were not yet in place in all of the churches and the churches didn't have the closed canon of scripture from which to preach and teach. So again, proponents of this view would say it was appropriate at that time to have this gift and this office of prophet uh, still active in the church. And they would point out that if you read through this letter, 1 Corinthians, there's no mention of pastors or elders existing yet in the church. And therefore, again, it would be very appropriate and needed to have prophets. However, they would say, if you look at Paul's later epistles, for example, 1 and 2 Timothy or Titus, where elders and deacons are clearly present and established leadership clearly exists in the church, in those epistles, you have no mention of the prophets. So again, a cessationist is saying it had a purpose, that purpose came to a close, and now we don't need it because of the other offices and the closed canon of Scripture. It would disappear, they would say, like the apostleship has disappeared. Now that's one view. The other big view would be a non-cessationist or a continuationist view. And this view holds that, uh, that again, the gift continues to exist, in the church today, continuationists. However, the most orthodox of these folks would agree that God still does not give new revelation today, a revelation that's on top of or apart from what's already in the Bible. For them, though, believers can still offer prophetic utterances in the context of corporate gatherings to build up the church by speaking God's already revealed word into a current context or into a current moment where maybe it's a specific need for that group of people at that particular time. Again, it's rooted in scripture, but it's given prophetically to apply that to this, to this moment. This kind of prophecy is more what we would say forthtelling than foretelling. It's not a prediction of a future thing like foretelling, but foretelling God's word to a moment. So again, maybe there's a particular application of the word of God that's meant for a particular church to hear. Or maybe there's a particular person that needs to hear a specific thing that's rooted in scripture, but it's really uh, prophetically given to them. Maybe at a church members meeting, uh, you can experience a prophetic moment when one of the church members speaks up to direct the church to a needed word from God for them that's rooted in Scripture. I think prayers can sometimes sound very prophetic, right? So you've got these two, these two common ideas. You've got the cessationists and then you've got the continuationists. And if those are the ways which, which I just described, that we can understand what is meant by cessationist or non-cessationist or continuationist views of prophecy, then perhaps you, you would wonder, well, Bill, what do you affirm? Well, I actually could say I affirm both. <laughs> and I'll explain what I mean by that. Um, I, I, I agree that the office of prophet, much like the office of, of the apostle, had a very different New Testament 
manifestation than we see today. I don't see that as a current office in the church. However, I, I do also affirm that I have very much experienced prophetic moments in the life of the church that are rooted in applications of God's word to a particular moment. I would say that the, the scripture is closed, that God's word has been given to us in full, and therefore I would, I would be very leery, I would reject a new revelation, particularly of a, contra- a contradicted scripture, when above and beyond what scripture says. At the same time, I'm not willing to put God in a box so much to say that in context where God's word doesn't have, isn't available, isn't translated, in new missionary context, for example, that God might not use a prophet to bring his word to that group of people. So I, 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 I sort of ride that fence a little bit, right? Um, and I, I think that's okay. I think that's balanced. What I don't affirm, because it's not in accordance with Orthodox Christian teaching, an Orthodox Christian belief would be any view, any view that again would promote some kind of new revelation from God that's on top of or apart from Scripture. If someone claims to have received a, quote, word from the Lord for you, um, and that word is contrary to clear biblical teaching, or it is, it's not, uh, it's not uh, verifiable like some kind of future prediction about what's going to happen in your life, I am very skeptical. Would likely believe that person to be a false prophet. And by the way, we're, we're seeing, I think, a resurgence of false prophets in our day and age. This last year, there's been a lot of self-proclaimed prophets who've used platforms like social media to promote themselves and to get their word out, predicting all kinds of things about future events and who's going to win the election and what's going to happen to this war or whatever. And I think that is entirely dangerous. I would run from that kind of so-called prophetic word, and I think you should too, okay? Now, again, I say all of this with humility. Each of us has to make informed hermeneutical and interpretive choices as we come to passages like this and try to figure out what, what's, what does this mean? What's going on here? And, a, and pastors especially have to do that, right? I'm, I'm teaching this to you as a congregation. So I have a, I have a, there's a weight of responsibility in the interpretive choices that I make when I do this. So I'm telling you this morning, I've made my interpretive choices. You've now heard them, and I'm confident enough in those choices to stand up and to teach them to you with a clear conscience. However, I am not so prideful as to die on the foolish hill of my own infallibility, okay? So study the scriptures. It was really encouraging to me that when we talked about the head coverings, and that was a difficult passage, that I know some some of you wrestled with those texts in your community groups or in other conversations. I think that's a very healthy thing to do. I want to encourage that. Uh, and let this, let's let the Holy Spirit use us together as the body to work together to understand appropriately what he's saying. So I'll, I'll say what I say with humility, but you've heard what I've said, and I feel good about it, okay? All right. The main point remains. We can work through the prophet and the tongues thing all day, but the main point remains. Here it is. The gift God gives to us through the Spirit 
every gift he gives to us through the Spirit is meant to build up the body. It's meant to build up the church. They should be used in an orderly and intelligible way for the purpose of edifying other people. So who are my gifts building up was the ultimate question. Do we somehow use the gifts that we have to build ourselves up? Or are we recognizing very clearly, no, it's, this is for other people. And this is how it needs to be employed. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 7, to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. It's for others. And again, here in chapter 14, verse 12, so with yourselves, since you're eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. That's the main idea. All right. So who are my gifts building up? They should be building up others. Secondly, this. How are my gifts building up? How are they building up? Look at verse 13. Again, we're in chapter 14 still here. Therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he doesn't know what you're saying? For you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not being built up. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Key verse here is verse 19. How do we build up the church? I want to do that in ways that engage with the mind and instruct others. How do you build up the church? You do it by engaging the mind. That's what he's trying to get at here. He's, he's, he's talking about tongues, right? And he says, look, languages have meaning. Look back at, at verse 10. Again, he says, there's doubtless many different languages in the world, and none of them is without meaning. In other words, he's, he's affirming that what language is for. It's, it's, it's meant to communicate something. It's meant to communicate meaning. So how we're doing this, how, we're, how we're, we're seeking to build one another up is we should be thinking about how am I communicate, communicating meaning to somebody that gives them something to grab onto, to believe, to think to grow on. Corporate worship is not the place, in other words, for the kind of spirit-over-the-mind worship that places a priority on individual experience, that places a priority on, and, I, and I've been trying to think of how to, how to say this or how to communicate this. I'm not really sure how to put my finger on it. I hope you, I hope you follow what I'm saying, but but there's this idea of sort of like abandoned expressions of worship that have this uh, very commonplace uh, position in, in our thinking of what worship experiences should look like. Does that make sense? 
So I've abandoned, sort of, and I'm not really engaging my mind. I'm sort of letting it go, letting it go, and just letting the Spirit sort of fill me. And, and there's this experiential thing. It's very feelings motivated. That, that, that kind of thing, Paul's saying, that's not what corporate worship is for. That's not what should be happening here. It might be appropriate for personal devotion, for private worship, but it's not the purpose of the gathered worship of the church. We're supposed to be engaging each other's minds. We're supposed to build each other up by, by, by speaking truths to one another that point us to Christ, to point us to the gospel. There, there's something that's meant to, to, to be um, spiritual, yes, but at the same time, always engaging of the mind. And again, we're talking about corporate worship. As verse 15 indicates, this also has something to do with how and why we sing during corporate worship. Corporate singing is meant to be in a way in which our hearts and our minds are engaged in both praise to God and in building up one another in the church. There's no doubt when we sing. I mean, we, we sing for a reason. One of those reasons certainly being that it's a, it's, it, there is an emotional uh, thing that happens in singing that's different than when we just normally speak to one another, right? So there is an engagement of our emotion, and I think that there's something beautiful about that, that's, that music and song can evoke in us that enhances the worship experience, that, that God gave us those kinds of responses to things like music for a reason. So that certainly happens when we, when we come together and, and when we sing. However, at the same time, there's this helpful tool in music for helping us to remember things, to remember sound doctrine, to remember gospel truths and help us to communicate them. Good music stirs the soul. It elicits joy. It elicits wonder. It, it, it even elicits sometimes sorrow and tears. And again, all of those things are appropriate for prayerful worship. And yet at the same time, there's a meter to singing. There's a rhyme oftentimes in our singing. There's a repetition that works to drill the words of truth deep into us so that we're able to uh, recall those things more easily. We're able to recall them in, in, in any circumstance. Again, music is a, is, a, is a wonderful teaching tool as well. How did you learn the ABCs? You learned it in a song, right? Can you still say the, can you say the alphabet without singing the song? You can't do it, right? It's a teaching tool. It's helpful in that way. And I think that's where, that's where, where Paul is, is kind of getting at here. He's saying like, like that's, that's what we do when we're gathered together. It's, it's not just this feeling and this a, a sort of abandoned moment of, of expression. It's teaching too. And it must be balanced when we gather corporately. In Ephesians 5.19, which is also paralleled in Colossians chapter 3, verse 16, Paul says, to be filled with the Spirit, again, we're talking about spiritual gifts here, to be filled with the Spirit, he says, results in the church singing songs and hymns and spiritual songs to one another that help the word of Christ to dwell richly in us. So when we're exercising spiritual gifts and the spirit is present we're we're being built up 
through song. That helps God's word root in our hearts. So we need to remember this. We need to remember that that's an important balance in our worship service. I think it's too, it's too easy, it's too common for us to, to sort of think about uh, singing as worship, right? What are we doing when we, get, when we, when we gather for our, our Sunday morning service? Well, we're going to start off with some worship. Da, 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 and then we move on to something else that we don't call worship. And we end with worship, more worship when we sing. That's, that's, a, that's a weird, <laughs> that's not a biblical category there. We need to remember that, that this, whole, this whole thing that we do, this, everything that we gather together for corporately contributes to our worship. And that that worship is both a heightening of our emotions for sure, but also an, an edification of the body. Verse 17, you may be giving thanks well enough but another person is not being built up. That's something to be avoided. So Paul's encouragement to us here is to have meaningful worship in the church that both engages the spirit and the mind, and he places the greater emphasis on the mind. The greater emphasis on the mind because of the intelligible communication that is necessary to do so, to engage the mind and its ability then to bless others in ways that they can understand it and profit from it. One more time, verse 19. Nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Lastly, I'll just read through verses 20 to 25. And I think what Paul's getting at here is just sort of the, the building power of intelligible worship. Brothers, don't be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. In the law it is written, by people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners will I speak to this people, and even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Thus tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers. While prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers, but for believers. If therefore the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues, and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you're out of your minds? But if all prophesy, and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he's convicted by all. He's called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so falling on his face, he will worship God, and declare that God is really among you. You know, the Corinthian church was experiencing so many problems. We've talked about this over and over again because they were spiritually immature. And that immaturity led them to view their spiritual gifts, again, as a measuring stick for themselves. It was a comparison tool. It was a status thing. And what better way for me to sort of compare myself or feel like my status is more elite than yours than to use something like the gift of tongues for, for, for a wow factor, right? I'm, I'm suddenly speaking a language that I don't know. I mean, that's, that's, that gets your attention. That can be very impressive. And that's, that's the way they were misusing the gift. That's the opposite of the Spirit's intent in giving them the gifts. 
Again, gifts are for building up the church. I think what he's getting at here, again, these are hard verses to fully comprehend. What he says in the law, it is written that by the people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners will I speak to this people, and even then they will not listen. I think he's pointing back to the fact that uninterpreted tongues are actually a sign of judgment throughout Scripture. Now, it's not a good thing. It's not, it's, not, it's not like a spiritual thing, an impressive thing. When somebody's speaking in languages that are not being comprehended, that's, that's God judging his people. You can think back to the first occurrence of that at the Tower of Babel. It's confusion, right? It's, it's meant to confuse and divide. That's a, sin, that's a sign of judgment. He's saying, when you do that in the church service, do you realize what you're doing? The opposite of what the Spirit is intending to do. Intelligible proclamation of gospel truth, on the other hand, leads to genuine worship. Somebody comes in and they hear you speaking intelligible things of God, pointing them to the gospel, that can convict them. That can draw them to a place of worship. That can ultimately save and edify people. And so Paul is again pointing back to that. Romans chapter 10, how will they call on him who they've not believed? How are they to believe in him of whom they've never heard? How are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they're sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. See, Paul's saying, look, all of these things work out when we worship in a way and we speak in a way to build one another up in ways that we hear and understand and believe. That's how our gifts are to be utilized. So just a brief recap. There is a diversity of gifts. All of them meant to work together for the unity of the body. Each member of the church has been given spiritual gifts. Each of us. And those gifts, as we talked about last week, are not necessarily fixed, but will be given by God to those who eagerly desire to build up the church in love. The point of the gifts is to build up the church, not to gain attention, not to demonstrate some kind of spiritual status before others. It's to build up the church. And when those gifts are manifested, people will worship God and his presence will be made visible in our midst. Finally, love is the key to all of it. So as he started in chapter 13, as he starts in chapter 14, pursue love. Desire the gifts, but pursue love. So I want to just close by asking us this question for us to think about this week. Again, I don't have some big crescendo application here, but, but if, this, if the way that we interact with one another, and specifically in the use of our spiritual gifts, is a demonstration of how the gospel is being worked out in our lives, in our faith community, how are we doing? What does the gospel do? We, we, we just took communion together. We're reminded of this new covenant, right? We've been redeemed. We were a people who, who had rejected God and, and hated one another. We were selfish to the core, and we've been saved out of that sin. We've been redeemed to be a new people who reflect the goodness and love of God through Jesus Christ. We are meant to be now lovers of others. 
We're meant to, to spur one another on and point them to the redemption and growth that's available in Jesus Christ. And, and so if we gather together, we need to be asking this question all the time. How are we doing in working out the, the, the fruit of the gospel in us in the way that we interact, in the way that we worship together? Are we a people who are demonstrating transformation from selfishness to self-giving love through Christ? So again, we're going to be, you know, constantly asking these questions. What, what, is, what, are, what are the spiritual gifts that God has been given to us, and, and, and how, how is that to be worked out? Just keep it simple. Love one another. Love one another. Remember the gospel. Remember what God has done, not only in you individually, but what he's working to do corporately in his people. Your salvation is not just about you. You've been called to a family. We're called to work that out. We're called to demonstrate that self-giving love and building one another up. That's, that's what spiritual gifts are for. So Father, I pray that you just help us again as a church as we work through these, these challenging texts just to understand what's being said here. Lord, I pray that we, we take seriously you know, the, the, the nuances of Paul's writings here and know that your spirit has has given him those utterances, and that by seeking you, by by your Spirit's illumination, we can understand what you want us to hear. But even in that, I think there's a call to do that together, to do that in unity. So help us to be a church that that strives together in love to, to build one another up, to understand your word, to apply these things, and ultimately to be a people who reflect the salvation of Jesus Christ into our world. Help us be a a people who are self-giving, who are lovers of God and lovers of neighbor, that when others see us, they could say, wow, God is there. God is with them. Give us a testimony of your grace by making us a people who are gracious. We pray those things in Jesus' name. Amen.